one evening. And so I would recommend that you tuck that Bible study, um, that prayer sheet, uh, into the back of your uh, Bible there and save that for next week. That way you don't, you don't, you don't have to fill everything out. It's going to definitely take us two weeks to get through this. And so uh, just be aware of that. Matthew chapter 1. Everybody found it? Brought your Bible. There's a pew Bible there in front of you. First book of the New Testament. Once you find that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at the first verse here. And we'll have a word of prayer. The Bible says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so tonight we're going to look at the book of Matthew. The title of the message is this, Behold your King. Behold your King. Let's pray. God, I ask, ask tonight that you help us as we dive into this Bible study, that you'd help us to understand it, to understand your word. And Lord, I, I pray that the book of Matthew would come alive for us tonight. And uh, it's a book that we're all probably way more familiar with than, say, Zechariah or Hezekiah. But, Lord, it's uh, still, there, there's plenty here, uh, Lord, that uh, is uh, where we can uncover and be brought close to you. And, Lord, let me just say thank you for being our king and a king that cares. Not a king that sits back and rules without caring for us, but you're a king that cares. And how grateful we are for that, that we can trust you. As the moments fly, because we know that you're right by our side, watching our, our every move, and Lord, helping us along the way. Help us to trust you. Help us to submit to you as our King. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The Bible study tonight will uh, lean more on Bible knowledge than it will a challenge to go live a certain way. With that said, um, that does not mean that I won't delve off and, and, and challenge you at some point or another, but tonight I want you to put your thinking caps on with me and really pay attention uh, to the book of Matthew. Now, I know as a young Christian, I would open up my Bible and I'd say, you know what, the Old Testament's really tough. I'm going to jump into the New Testament and I'm going to begin in the book of Matthew because that's not as hard to understand as the Old Testament. Anybody else here do that with me when you first started out? And I opened up to Matthew chapter 1, and I got past verse 1, and I knew who Jesus was, and I knew who David and Abraham were. But then I got down into verse 3, and I saw Pharisees and Zerah and Thamar, and I thought, what? This isn't easier than the Old Testament. This is harder, right? And so, um, uh, but, you know, you get past the names there, and it gets a whole lot easier. Now you say, why would God... Open the book of Matthew with a long list of names. And i got to say, those lists of names are very, very, very important. Now, they may be hard for you to pronounce, and you may not know who all those people are, uh, but both in Matthew and then in one of the other Gospels, one, uh, we're given the lineage of Joseph, and uh, here, well, uh, rather here, we're given the lineage of Joseph, and then in that other uh, Gospel, we're given the lineage of Mary, and both trace back to David. This is proving that uh, that both David's adopted father was from uh, King David, and Mary, uh, da uh, rather Jesus's adopted father, and then Jesus's mother also came from the lineage of David. And there is a gene uh, genealogy that traces all the way back to them, and that's also so very important. Now uh, here he takes us back to uh, David, and then he takes us back. The Matthew here takes us back to. 
to uh, Abraham. And both of those are very important. And you say, well, why, why are those important? You see, God met with uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12. And he gave what we now call the Abrahamic Covenant. If you were here in church with us when we started this study, uh, way long back, a long time ago, we started out in Genesis and we talked about the Abrahamic Covenant there in Genesis 12 where God told Abraham, I'm going to make of thee a great uh, nation. I'm going to bless your seed and I'm going to, uh, 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 everything that you, every, everywhere you step on, that land will become yours and those that bless you, I will bless and those that curse you, I will curse. By the way, that's why here at Wadduke Baptist Church, we support Israel because the Bible says we'll be blessed if we do so. And so that's why we stand uh, with God's chosen people. Do they always make the right decisions? No, they don't. Uh, we don't always make the right decisions as a country. And But uh, but nonetheless, we should stand by them and support them. And But the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I was left to answer this question as I did my studies. And that was this. How did Jesus fulfill the Abrahamic covenant? You ever stop and wonder that? Well, we know that God promised Abraham land. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Hold your place there, Matthew 1, uh, obviously. Turn over to Hebrews chapter number 11. He was promised land. He said, everywhere where your foot steps, I'm going to give that to your children. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse number 10. We find out what Abraham was really looking for while he was walking around. It's speaking of Abraham here. Again, verse 8 uh, starts talking about Abraham. Verse 10, For he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham uh, was promised uh, a land. And guess what? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ... They go to heaven, just like Abraham, no doubt, now is in heaven. Uh, what else was Abraham promised? He was promised uh, that his seed would be blessed. Turn over to Galatians chapter number 3. Just a couple of books there to the left. Uh, uh, Galatians chapter number 3. It is after 2 Corinthians and before Ephesians, if you're looking for it there. Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 16. It says there, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, you can trace the genealogy trail from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Abraham was the promised seed that would not only bless Abraham and his people, but would bless everybody. Bless everybody. Um, you all know the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Shall we all stand up and sing it? Not going to happen. All right. Uh, we'll all be doing circles in the church. Amen? We'll look more like a Pentecostal church than a Baptist church. Uh, but you know the song. We sing that with our kids in, in junior church. Uh, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, if you are saved. So let's just praise the Lord. That's how the song goes there. So uh, who, how, uh, how, are, how was the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled through the person of Jesus? Jesus was that seed of Abraham birthed through Isaac and uh, was the one that brought about salvation. And Galatians 3 makes that clear. Again, how was the Abrahamic seed, uh, uh, Abrahamic covenant fulfilled? Well, uh, he was promised a blessing. And I think this one's obvious. 
what was or who was that blessing? It was the person of Jesus. Through Isaac and all the way down there, you read the, you read the genealogy of Abraham begatting Isaac and then Jacob and then Judas and his brethren and on down and down and down. And then you have Jesus and Jesus was that blessing that would be born that would not only save Abraham from his sins, but all of us as well. So right there again, Genesis, or rather Matthew chapter one, verse one, we see the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled through the person of Jesus, but also the Davidic covenant. You say, what is the Davidic covenant? God came down to King David and he gave King David a promise. And I'll say this, that D- Davidic covenant is not yet totally fulfilled. Uh, it, it will be totally fil- fulfilled when Jesus comes back and he rules and reigns. But in the person of Jesus being born on earth the first time, some of that was fulfilled. Turn over to Romans chapter one with me in your Bible. Romans chapter number one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, and look down with me at verse number 3. It says there, concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David... According to the flesh. So the Davidic covenant, God told uh, uh, David, I will bless your son and I will make sure that uh, uh, when he steps out of line, he's punished and that uh, uh, your throne will rule and reign forever. And here we see that Jesus is called David's son. Now, not only is Jesus David's son, but Jesus is David's Lord. Go back to the book of Matthew and turn over to Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 45. You came here tonight for a Bible study, so I'm going to make you work to earn it tonight. You have to turn all over the place. Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 45. Look at verse 44. The Bible says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord... How is he his son? So here Jesus is giving the Pharisees a riddle that they'll never figure out. They wouldn't figure out. But we know. Now look back at verse 44. And here's where i got to tell you that uh, if your Bible doesn't have this, then it isn't accurate. Um, This is very important. Look at the first Lord there. Notice how all of the letters ought to be capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Look at the second Lord. Capital L, lowercase o-r-d. You see that? Uh, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, and I take, make thine enemies thy footstool. So to be somebody's Lord, that just means you're over them, you hold position over them, usually in a royal sense. And so here, uh, King David is the little O, little R, little D, and Jesus is the capital O, R, D, and he's saying that, and so the question is, how can the Son be in charge of the Father? And the Pharisees would not be able to answer that. And the reason is, is that while Jesus is the Son of David, really, Jesus is also the Father of David, because Jesus would create him and then come down to earth and be born through the womb of Mary, who would be the great descendant of David. So uh, Jesus, in his birth, would fulfill not only the Abrahamic covenant, but also the Davidic covenant. Come back next week. i got another really neat thing to show you about uh, uh, the book of Matthew and how it ties back into the Old Testament. Now, I'll just say that. Uh, with that said, let me just add here that uh, 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 Matthew was very, very, very quick to tie Jesus back into the Old Testament. 
Very quick to do that. Why did he do that? Very first verse, he ties Jesus to Abraham and he ties Jesus to David because he's trying to make the point here that Jesus is coming along to connect the writing of this new covenant, the New Testament, and the Old Testament. They are connected together and uh, they belong together. And so uh, that's very, very important. Now, the book of Matthew, interestingly enough, is written in a very symmetrical way. And i got to tell you this, I didn't know this until I studied for this this message, and so maybe uh, uh, this is common knowledge, and I just missed the boat, but my guess is most of you probably have not heard this either. The book is structured this way. The first three chapters are the introduction. Uh, Then uh, you have chapters 26, 27, and 28. So the last three chapters are the conclusion. So you have the introduction and the conclusion, and then you have five sections to the book of Matthew that are very deliberate, and they all point to Jesus being a king. Now, you might say, why did God give us four Gospels where they all pretty much have the same stories just repeated over and over again? Couldn't have we just gotten one large Gospel with all the stories and that been good enough? And the answer is no. God knew what He was doing by giving us four Gospels. One, it validated the life of Jesus. Two, it gave us different perspectives coming from different people. And uh, another thing I'd say here is that God wanted to emphasize a different uh, Jesus, His Son, in a different way in each of those books. So, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is exalted as a king. Turn around in Mark and Jesus is exalted as a servant. We'll look at that uh, in in the weeks to come. The book of uh, Luke, he would be portrayed as the son of uh, man, I believe. And then in the book of John, he's portrayed as the son of God. So each book offers us different perspective by the author. But each book also offers us a different perspective of who Jesus was in the person of Jesus. Here we see Jesus as a king. And so the book breaks down after you get to past chapter 3 into five sections. And each section, uh, philosophically, explains a, a characteristic or an attribute or gives us sight into Jesus and uh, Him being a king. And then it is finished or concluded, that section is concluded, by a teaching. So let's jump right in here and begin looking at the outline. I hope you have a prayer bulletin there and you can take notes as we go. Number one, notice the announcement of God's kingdom. The announcement of God's kingdom. So this would be chapters 4 through 7. And uh, uh, here Jesus comes on the scene. Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter 1, we have uh, uh, Jesus here uh, being uh, his lineage. Let's back up and look at the introduction of the book real quick. Verse 18 down through verse 25, you have the uh, very commonly known story of the birth of Jesus. And uh, by the way, here uh, in here, it talks about him being born as a king. And then his name is called Emmanuel. Uh, very important to note that Mary was a virgin. We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. You say, how is that possible? It's not, but with God all things are possible. Mary uh, was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was born through the womb of a virgin. And so, here you have King Jesus, born through the womb of a a virgin, and you have 70 different uh, uh, times where Matthew refers back to the Old Testament and quotes it as to authenticate the life of of Jesus. So, uh, that that is a very interesting factoid here. So, you have Jesus, uh, uh, you see that there at the end of chapter 1, he's called Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Chapters 2 and 3, you have the stories of uh, uh, Jesus' coming onto the scene 
and uh, uh, his uh, traveling into Egypt. We'll look at that in depth next week a little bit closer. You also see here, chapter 3, that he's baptized of John the Baptist as he begins his earthly ministry. But again, we'll look at uh, some of those things a little bit more depth next week. You jump into chapters 4 through 7, and what you get into here is you get into the very beginning, and that is the announcement of God's kingdom. And so let me uh, point out to you a couple of things here. Uh, Letter A, it's citizens. It's citizens. Now, the Pharisees were a spiritual elitist group, and they were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And they basically preached a you're-not-good-enough-to-be-like-us type sermon. And uh, we're holier than thou, we're better than you, and if you want to make it into heaven, you've got to behave like we do. And uh, that was really their message. And Jesus came along with a totally opposite message. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, uh, his disciples came into him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, listen what, listen what he has to say about what heaven, who heaven is for. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What? Blessed are the poor? The poor? The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor? You understand, the, the, the Pharisees were rich. They had lots of money. They weren't poor. And so God is saying here, you've got to be poor. Not financially poor, but poor in spirit. Look at verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn. You're supposed to mourn? God blesses you that mourn? Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Oh, well, the Pharisees were anything but meek. Right off the bat, Jesus is putting the religious elitists on their heels. He's saying, uh, uh, I'm here to announce a new kingdom and its citizens, the people that inherit this kingdom. Here is how they behave. Look at verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Verse 8. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so here Jesus comes on the scene and He says, let me announce to you a new kingdom and let me share with you who will be the citizens of this kingdom of God. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, verse 12 says. Verse 13 goes on to say that those who inherit the kingdom, they are salt and they are light, verse 14. And then uh, uh, verse 16, let your light so shine before men. And so here we see the citizens of heaven, oh, they're quite different than what the Pharisees had twisted and turned the Old Testament to make it look like it ought to be. Letter B, we see it's completion. It's completion. So um, the Old Testament is given to us and it is sort of the slides that fit into the projector. So the Old Testament are the slides. The New Testament is the slide projector where we can now put in all of these Old Testament uh, uh, slides and we can see how this works, how it's displayed, how it comes about. Jesus is there and all these people are listening to this sermon and their heads are spinning. Wait, what? 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 What are you saying? You you got to be meek and poor in spirit, and you got to be a peacemaker, and, and, and you got to behave all, all these things to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus uh, comes around and he clarifies, verse 17. He says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus clarifies right off the bat. He says, I know my sermon sounds different than all of the religious people you're hearing preach, with the exception of John the Baptist, but I'm not here to destroy the law. They perverted the law. I'm here to straighten out the law, and now I'm here to also complete the law, to complete the law. So we see it's 
completion. So the announcement of God's kingdom. And so it, it opens with Jesus out uh, actively seeking for those to follow him in chapter 4. And then we get the famous Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. I've done a lot of preaching on the Sermon on the Mount here in the recent months. If, if you're interested in what that sermon's about in depth, I would encourage you to go on to our, uh, our, our church website and listen to those sermons, or you can order the CDs through the bookstore. Okay, number two, we see the actions of God's kingdom. The actions of God's kingdom. And this is the second section of the book. Jesus completes his teaching in chapter 7, and now we're, we go from the announcement of God's kingdom, and now we can see the actions of, of God's kingdom. And uh, so first, letter A, notice Christ goes. Christ goes. God isn't going to send anyone until he first goes and shows himself. Christ goes and shows himself. Look down to chapter 8 and verse number 1. It says there, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses uh, commanded, for a testimony unto them. And so chapter 8 opens uh, with Jesus performing several miracles here. In fact, Jesus would perform nine miracles here in chapters uh, uh, 8 and 9. And in these nine miracles, Jesus is showing what the kingdom is about. It's reaching down and helping those that are hopeless and maimed and sick. We talked about the pool of Bethesda several months ago in, in a Sunday, on a Sunday morning. We talked about how that word Bethesda could mean one of two things. We talked about how that word Beth means house. And that word Esda in the Hebrew tongue there, that meant grace usually. However, it could mean disgrace depending on how you used it. And for those that were sick, they looked up and saw that pool where people got down into when the angels stirred the water and they were healed. And they're coming up to the pool. They're sick. They're lamed. They're blind. Whatever it may be. They're coming up to the pool. And what they sense, what they feel, what they see, those that could see, they saw Bethesda, house of grace. But the Pharisees, they walked past it and they said, Ah, who put that pool there with all those sick people? Get them out of here! They saw a house of disgrace. Jesus comes, and He doesn't go buddy-buddy up with the Pharisees, the phonies. He goes down to the pool of Bethesda, and He heals them. He goes around, and, and He touches the leper, and He takes the leprosy away. Oh, what a tremendous thing. I find it interesting that right after Jesus finishes His Sermon on the Mount... He gets up and he preaches a sermon that is radical to the ears of those listening. He comes down off the mountain and the very, very first thing he does is he walks up to a leper and he heals them. My friend, it's not enough just to talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. You've got to walk the walk. Jesus would go in chapters 8 and 9, he performed nine miracles. Now, these really can be put in sets of three, and interestingly enough, after the first three, Jesus gives the, the same order he gives after the second set of three. Look down with me, uh, so we have three miracles there to open chapter 8. After the third miracle, look down at verse 18 of chapter 8. 
Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples uh, said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, look at here, follow me. If you're underlining in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline those two words. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So Jesus finishes the first three miracles and people are amazed by this and they want to follow Him and they want to learn uh, by Him. They know that He's a good man, He's a prophet and Jesus says to him, them, follow me. Follow me. He goes on and performs three more miracles and after He performs the sixth miracle, the author of the book, Jesus comes in contact with Him. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 9. And the Bible says there, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs and He says, and He saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus again, He's reaching down to who? He's reaching down to the brokenhearted. He's reaching out to the lame. He's reaching out to the outcasts of society. Now, let, how does Levi tie into that? Matthew tie into that, the author of this book. He ties into this this way. Matthew, while he was rich in money, he was poor in relationships. He was a tax collector. He worked for the IRS. And trust me, the IRS back then, of their day, was much more hated in the IRS of our day. You see, a, a tax collector like Matthew, he could show up at your house and he could say, you owe, you owe me, you owe the government $2,000 when you really only owed 1500 He would give the 1500 to the government and he would pocket 500 for himself. And there were no checks and balance systems to keep him in line. Matthew's hated because he was a tax collector. And the power they wielded over the people, there was nothing you could do about it. Now, if uh, the IRS, some guy in a fancy suit, comes shows up at your door tomorrow and says, hey, there's been an error in your, in your uh, filing and you're $30,000 behind, buddy, you, 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 that's not somebody you want to see. Right? No one liked Matthew. They didn't want to see Matthew. But Jesus walked up to Matthew and he knew that he was probably a crook. But he knew that Matthew was empty inside and looking to change. He looked at Matthew and he, he just said two words. He said, Matthew, he said, follow me. Matthew left his publican station and he followed Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is reaching out to the downcast, the, 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 the downtrodden rather, the outcast of society. And so you have nine miracles here that Jesus does. After the first set of three, he orders some people, follow me. They didn't, but he ordered it. Uh, after the second set of three, he orders Matthew, follow me. And Matthew leaves his, uh, uh, leaves his chair there at the custom, receipt of customs, and he follows the Savior. But Jesus wasn't done, because for Jesus to go alone wasn't good enough. Jesus had now collected his disciples. And now in chapter uh, 10, Christ sends out the disciples. And so letter B, we see second of all, Christ sends. So first, Christ goes. Second, 
Christ's sin. So he set the example. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. And when he had come unto him, his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sick, uh, sickness and all manner of disease. And so Jesus pairs them up two by two and he sends them out in the city. And then this section ends with Jesus teaching his disciples uh, how they are to handle themselves as they go out. They're not to collect any money to go. They're to trust in the Lord that uh, he'll provide for their needs and that if they're rejected, they're to shake the dust off their feet, verse 14, and uh, and uh, uh, wish evil against the city or rather that for God's judgment on the city and that uh, God will provide for them and take care of them. And so those instructions are there. Now, let me just say quickly here that God uh, uh, does not command us to do something that he first doesn't set the example to do. God's not telling you to go out and be a witness for Him without Him having done it Himself. He came to earth in the form of a man, and He witnessed to everybody in His sight. And then He tells us to do the same. Tells us to do the same. By the way, that's a good principle for life. Don't tell your kids to do something you're not willing to do yourself. I'm going to get really practical here. Dads, don't tell your kids to go wash the dishes if you're not willing to go in and wash the dishes. They need to see you wash the dishes sometimes. At least once a year. Then you know you're willing to get in there and do it. Right? Um, you, you ought to be willing to lead by example. Lead by example. These moms and dads that tell their kids, go make your bed. And then on the way to their room, they walk past mom and dad's room and the bed's unmade. <laughs> Why do I have to make my bed? They don't make theirs. You know what I mean? Jesus is telling His disciples to go, but first He showed them how to do it. And then He instructed them, and then He sent them out. The actions of God's kingdom. Number three, we see the attitudes. The attitudes toward God's King, King Jesus. The attitudes toward God's King. This is the third section of Matthew, and um, uh, clearly at each section there is a different direction or different thing that Matthew's trying to accomplish in the writing of his book. By the way, and I've said this many times before, but for those of you that are new here uh, or uh, have never heard me say this before, God wrote the Bible, all right? God told Matthew what to write down. Matthew didn't just come up with this on his own. God told Matthew what to write down, but God used Matthew's perspective and what he saw to help this get pinned it down. So, um, you would think that, hey, Jesus has come on the scene, and He's walking around, and He's taking someone that's blind, and He's giving them their sight. I mean, what person would be against that? He's walking up to someone who's deaf, and hes uh, they're able to hear when He walks away. They've never been able to hear in their life, and now they're able to hear. He's walking up to a mute man who can't speak, or a mute woman who can't speak, and he's opening their tongue, loosening their tongue, and they can speak. He's walking up to a leper, and he's taking their leprosy away. He's walking up to a lame man, and that man can now walk. I mean, you think that, hey, everybody would be for Jesus. Was that the case? Would that be the attitudes? Well, we see three different attitudes toward God's King, King Jesus. Letter A, we see some questioning. Some questioning. We're going to get into why people looked at him in a different way here in a minute, but let's get through the attitudes first. Look down at chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding the twelve disciples, he departed then to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the work of Christ, 
he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? You know what John the Baptist is doing? He's questioning. He's questioning. By the way, John the Baptist wasn't the only one that would question. You know who else questioned Jesus? His brothers and sisters. Uh, I mean, I never saw the guy do anything wrong growing up with him, but my understanding of what a Messiah is supposed to be and do, he's not really doing it. Now, John the Baptist, I believe, questioned for different reasons. John the Baptist had been thrown into prison, and I think he thought that, hey, if my cousin is, is the Messiah, I don't think he would let me sit in prison. We see later, we'll see later in the, in the book here, we won't look at it, but later in the book of Matthew, John's actually beheaded and becomes a martyr for his faith. He dies for his faith. Jesus didn't stop that. Jesus and God are not obligated to step in and stop every bad thing that would happen to you. No doubt there's people in the room, you've been really mistreated in your life. And you've wondered, where was God when I was being hurt? Can I tell you where God was when you were being hurt? He was in the same place he was when his son was being hurt. You know, he didn't step in and stop that either. He didn't step in and stop that either. Could have. But if he did, we wouldn't go to heaven. And through his suffering, I'm free. Sometimes God allows people to suffer. He doesn't stop it. He has a greater plan in mind. He has a greater plan in mind. We just have to trust him. So some questioned God. Letter B, we see some accept. Some accept. Look down at verse 4 of chapter 11. Jesus answered and said unto them, these are the disciples of John that uh, are coming from the prison and, and, and checking up and, and questioning Jesus on John the Baptist's behalf. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. Let me ask you a question. If you were blind and Jesus gave you your sight, would you believe in him? I think so, right? The lame walk. What if you were crippled from the waist down and all of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you stood up and walked? You think you believe in Jesus? The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. How about if you died and he brought you back from the grave? You think you'd believe in him? The poor have the gospel preached to them. I, I don't want to be guilty of chasing rabbits. I do that from time to time. I'm chasing this one on purpose. Amen. Um, notice it didn't say the poor become rich. Be careful of those TV preachers. Now, if you're watching me on YouTube, I'm not talking about me, okay? Be careful of those big TV preachers that wear $3,000 suits and live in mansions. and careful with them. Well, oftentimes, they'll preach that if you love Jesus and you give to this ministry, then you'll, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy. It didn't say there that the poor were made rich. It said the poor had the gospel preached to them. The poor had the gospel preached to them. And you know what? The poor believed. So some questioned. What was the attitude toward King Jesus? Some questioned. Some accepted. And then in chapter 12, we see that some condemned. Some condemned. Look at chapter 12 in verse number 22. We're going to finish with point three tonight. Look at verse 22. 
Then was brought into him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant right here in front of us? So, so these people are believing. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, oh, the Pharisees, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. He's casting out these demons because he is possessed with the demon himself. This is a trick. They condemned. They condemned. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. Uh, how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore shall uh, be. Uh, therefore they shall be your judges. And so he intellectually owns them like he does all the time. Uh, in the scriptures, but we see that some condemn. And here's where I'll finish this today, is that these same attitudes still exist in our culture and day toward King Jesus. You know, some question Jesus. They're not for him or against him. They're just not really sure. They're just not really sure. You might be here tonight and you say, I don't really know what to do with Jesus. Can I tell you that I have watched him transform so many lives. You know why? Because he's not dead. He's alive. Spoiler alert. I just gave away the end of the, end of the book. He's alive. Oh, they killed him. But he defeated death. And if he can defeat death, he can defeat your problems. But you've got to believe in him. There's so many people in the world today that question him. They're not condemning him. They're questioning him. And if you die unsure of who Jesus is, without ever having accepted him, let me make sure I say that again, without ever having accepted him, then you're going to end up in the same place as those that condemn him. Then you have those that accept. If you're here on a Wednesday night, you probably accepted Jesus at some point. I'm not going to assume that's everybody could be one or two or three or more in the crowd that have not accepted Jesus. But somewhere along the way, he took the leprosy of your sin away, didn't he? He healed your soul of that dreaded disease of sin and damnation. And then there are those that flat out condemn Jesus. Flat out condemn him. These, these attitudes are still permeated in our culture today toward King Jesus. Next week, we'll look at the fourth and fifth section of the book, as well as the conclusion. And then we'll also go back to the first three chapters, and I'll show you a really neat parallel between Jesus and an Old Testament character. Here's my challenge to you today. See if you can figure out who that Old Testament character is. If you think you know who it is, come up and tell me. Tell me before next week. So again, I'm going to parallel Jesus to another Old Testament character that's evidenced in the first three chapters. If you read the first three chapters several times and you think about it real hard, you may be able to figure it out. If you think you figured it out, text me, call me, stop by and see me. I'd love to see your thoughts on that. Let's, um, let's bow for a word of prayer tonight. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it challenges us. Lord, I pray our attitude toward you would be accepting. We would be accepting toward you.
Thank you for such a powerful book in the Bible. Oh, it is so neat how it can be dissected and studied so many different ways. Lord, I pray that we would be that, uh, that disciple that is obedient. That we would follow your uh, example of, 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 of going and we would go ourselves as we've been so commissioned. Help us, Lord, to follow along and to obey your book. And Lord, help us to value it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet.